this is Brad Westwood, and you're listening to Speak Your Peace. This is a bod- podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history, including critics, curators, archivists, rare book dealers, and more, share their discoveries about Utah's history. The past is never truly the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to our shared and to our separate identities. What's in store for the future? You can answer this question better when you first examine the past. This is what this podcast strives to do for the many diverse and geographically varied communities across Utah. My speaker today is Western historian Will Bagley. Hello, Will. Hello, Brad. So good to have you here. We were remembering our personal history, which goes back decades. <laughs> it's while I was at BYU and you were working on Mormon battalion history and I think a number of other books simultaneously. Uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre and Sam Brannon and uh, all kinds of wonderful subjects. Well, and as I think about this podcast and in its, early begin, in its earliest beginnings in my mind, I thought of who could help me frame up the kind of essential idea of what is history and what part it plays in today's world. So as we begin this podcast, I ask you the question, what is history? History is time. It's about uh, our heritage as human beings and the stories we remember. It's it's important to, to know that History should be called our story, not just his or her story, but it's our story. And it's our collective memory of the past. And for my money, it should be told as it's told by uh, ancient uh, people, Paleolithic people, Mm -hmm. which was his stories. Uh, we are a storytelling creature. The old idea of around the campfire. Exactly. Bringing people together with these mutual stories of the past. And they create identity. They make us know who we are and where we came from. Such a big deal in Utah. I mean, identity is not only geographical, but there are so many communities in Utah, so many ways and means of looking at the past. And they all have fantastic traditions and stories because almost nobody got to Utah without making massive sacrifices and showing considerable courage. And then we have Utah's first peoples who uh, were, were, were those who were brave enough to leave <laughs> the old world Asia behind cross a land bridge in pursuit of the big animals that they learned to hunt and live on and come into this unpopulated, unexplored uh, Eden. It's not, I appreciate you doing, saying this because so often, particularly in the Academy, they divide history up in you know, prehistory and, 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 uh, and history. I, I really see Utah's history as really 13,000 years of human activity. And then there's prehistoric, which means before, well, or before people. Yeah. We have an an amazing geological past, an amazing uh, zoological past. Uh, We can see the bones of that history. Well, in any way you cut it, Utah has this in a grand 
panoramic way between paleology, paleontology, uh, geology, history. I mean, you can come and go anywhere you want and run into some part of the past. And fantastic stories, amazing characters, um, truly strange situations, <laughs> which is what you really need if you want to write honest, interesting history that has some, some reflection of the complexity of human life. Well, you've written, I think over, you've either written or edited over 20 books. Uh, uh, you can be uh, seen in the Tribune, 200 or more articles and uh, pieces related to Utah's history. You've seen so much, you've framed up so much history for so much of the public. Who are the people that you think of most are the influential historians that have told this story you're talking about? They're the people who I owe so much to and who made me a historian. And among that number are Floyd O'Neill, David L. Bigler, uh, Juanita Brooks. I never met Brooks, but uh, her heritage and her legacy uh, had a dramatic impact on how I see uh, the state of Utah and its past. So we've got any number of colorful, uh, controversial, and courageous characters. Uh, we can start, I think, in many ways with Juanita Brooks, who, as she, to use her phrase, was born on the ragged edge of the Mormon frontier in Bunkerville, Nevada, in 1898, and lived almost, well, into the ninth decade of the 20, 20th century, um, and inspired a number of other people. Uh, her mentor was Dale Morgan, and Morgan is another of these heroic, epic characters. and A, a very quiet, uh, unassuming, uh, hearing problems, but uh, such a large, in such large stature in his writing and his impact on Utah's history. His impact on Western history. Thank you. Yes, sir. He, uh, <laughs> I, I once, <laughs> I, I've, I've been a complete Dale Morgan fanatic uh, since I was cutting my teeth as a historian. And I noticed that on his uh, letters, there was the return address, which was 364 uh, East Hollywood. And his mother was a school teacher. Uh, her, his father had died young, leaving uh, her to raise the children. And he had several brothers. I don't think he had a sister, but he had several brothers. And like most people in Utah, was very, very close to his family and adored his mother and was very careful about her feelings as a great-granddaughter of Orson Pratt. <laughs> now, I, I went to see the bungalow uh, in Sugar House, where Dale Morgan grew up. And it was owned by the chief custodian 
of the Salt Lake School District. And he had bought it knowing it was Dale Morgan's house. And he told me what other historians now tell me is a legend, but that when, when Dale was 14, he came down with meningitis. And when he recovered from it, barely, uh, he had no hearing left. And so he had to face uh, a very challenging world with this tremendous disability. And at the time, there were no protections for disabled people. And he had a hard time. He was, he graduated from the U of U as a commercial artist uh, and went to San Francisco to try to find work and could find nothing. He'd also become already quite a noted writer, and he'd appeared in The Pen, which was the University of Utah Literary Magazine, and had become friends, uh, lifelong friends, with Wallace Stegner, uh, who was a young English professor. And he was a polymath, I think, think is the word. He could read something once and remember it uh, forever. And he could connect history. And what Dale Morgan taught me is in history, everything is connected. And in human life, we're all connected. In Utah, I'd like to say we're all cousins. But the, the, the work that Dale Morgan did was to mentor other young historians, notably Winnie the Brooks, but also Fawn Brody and... Uh, he advised Bernard DeVoto, who was a, a older but <laughs> immensely cranky and gifted writer and historian. And all these people were the product of Utah. They'd come from this arguably unique culture and owed a, a part, at least a lot of their love of history to the role that history plays in Mormonism. and. Mormonism is, is not just a historic religion. In that we know when it was founded. It was founded uh, in the age of newspapers. So we, we don't really know many facts about the origins of Christianity, uh, certainly not about Judaism, but we know an awful lot about Joseph Smith and the founding of Mormonism because it was all over the local newspapers in upstate New York. The whole modern world with all of its structure, newspapers, uh, recording, writing. Um, it, it was very much a, something that uh, history was in the forefront of its creation. I mean, its whole paradigm centered around history, which I think in some ways, uh, Will, um, makes history kind of hyper-intensive in Utah. Oh, it does. Because it matters. Uh, it's, an, it's a religious issue in Utah because the Book of Mormon claims to be uh, the only authentic history of ancient America, which is a pretty audacious claim. And the title page of the Book of Mormon says that it was written to bring uh, the Lamanites, which are in Mormonism, American Indians, uh, to the knowledge of Christ. 
to the remembrance. Yes. Yes. So, so this idea of memory keeps coming up and it really is so much a part of this, this podcast. Um, Juanita Brooks, uh, Dale Morgan, I'm sure in your career, you have felt the kindness as well as the, the intellectual force of many people's minds when it comes to history. Um, so much of people know history. It's kind of part of their life. It's inescapable. It's what happened yesterday. But as a public historian, as someone who's sort of given the responsibility to say, okay, history has relevance. It has value. Here's why. How would you answer that, Will? How does it have relevance to modern lives, to people out there that aren't lovers of history like you and I? Because it warns us of human folly and how pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. <laughs> if we believe that we are unique and special, uh, we have the fall awaiting us. And I also believe that it tells us what it means to be human and our, our, our ability to do great good, to be compassionate, to raise up people, and our propensity to do tremendous evil, often in the name of religion, but... But the, the, uh, there's that classic statement by a Harvard philosopher that those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But I think we're all condemned to repeat the past. By human nature, I suppose. By our, our folly, <laughs> our, our arrogance, and our failure to really uh, appreciate how, how limited our, our vision is. And how life is so complex and the past is such a puzzle that if you start saying, well, here's the lessons that history teaches or history proves this. Yikes, that's what I worry about when I hear people with a finger in the air tell me, you know, uh, history teaches us X and Y. Yes. <laughs> well, there's a lot to learn from history. But if people, if, if, if peoples and empires and nations especially learned anything from history, um, nobody would ever invade Afghanistan because it's been the graveyard of empire since as the, the Persian Empire uh, tried to subdue um, the Persian Empire tried to subdue uh, rebellions in Afghanistan as Xerxes was marching Persian armies to uh, Marathon <laughs> and the great defeat of the Persian Empire by the Athenians, which we as Westerners like to see as our salvation and the birth of our Western culture and democracies uh, and all of that. But at the same time, uh, we can be as blind as Xerxes. And we, we need to appreciate how fallible we are, we are as people. 
and to believe that we can do what's never been done, such as win a war in Afghanistan, is pure and simple folly. It's not going to happen. And we as a, a people, the American people, were born by launching a rebellion against the world's most powerful empire, the British Empire. And in my lifetime, I've seen uh, the American Empire, which I think, unfortunately, that's what we've become, try to put down an indigenous rebellion in Vietnam, try to put down indigenous rebellions in the Middle East, and they never succeed. Uh, it's, it's partly the arrogance of power, which all of us who have power tend to abuse it, but wisdom is a very, very elusive commodity or property or um, attribute. And those of us who claim it usually have the least of it. Or should very well not think they have much at all. Exactly. And as Dale Morgan said, the more I find out, the more I find out I need to find out. So, so Will, when I, when I think across that 13,000 years of known human activity in Utah, and I think of all the various communities, geographically, um, uh, ethnically, uh, the, all the nationalities, all the waves that have come through Utah, and it's surprising when you gather up all these waves, just how much we are this world of immigrants, this Oh, constantly yes. sojourning group of people that are call, called Utahns. And are seeking a better life. That One common attribute of humanity is we, we tend, as historians, unfortunately, to focus on the big man theory. Mm -hmm. We look at the big, uh, powerful people uh, who are, in Western culture, certainly mostly men. But we forget that at least that's how history framed it or how we've sort of socially, I mean, that's not to say, or at least in my mind, I think we have an equal claim and uh, history is before us no matter what the gender. Absolutely. But nonetheless, there is unfortunately this, this march of male based history. And it's the worship of power. Mm -hmm. powerful men. But in fact, history is made by common people. History is made by ordinary folks who are just trying to do well by their families, to give their families a better life. That's a universal attribute. I, I can't uh, help but think of uh, my uh, recent readings of, of Italians and Greeks, uh, the Japanese communities, uh, so many of them uh, centered around uh, West Side of uh, Pioneer Park. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite all the political and economic travails, they want to come to have a better life. Their whole purpose was, I can find a job here. I can secure a life. And all the risks and all the peril that happens to get here and then to survive here, and then eventually, in many ways, these communities flourish. It's really... And individuals flourish. Many of the great Utah families and fortunes trace right back to immigrant roots. 
especially let's say the Greeks were very enterprising, successful people. Um, Gus Palos, uh, Helen Papa Nicholas, uh, all had families that became very wealthy and very powerful and then contributed back to society, helped make Utah a much better place. I think if anyone were to take something from history, you know, say a young man or young woman uh, in their teens, it's that no matter how different or unique you are, there have been people just like you that have made a life for themselves here in Utah that it isn't quite as, you know, the sense of other. We were talking about this as we were coming together to this to this taping. And, uh, this notion of being the other uh, is something all of us encounter and experience. And um, you're not alone. You can, oh, yes. you can get through that. You can survive. I mean, if history can share anything, it's um, keep on keeping on, you know, don't let... Don't let anything get you down. You can prevail. Look at all these examples in history. And keep dreaming dreams because <clears throat> the greatest achievements in our history are made by dr dreamers who were able to make their dream become a reality. And ahead, I've please. been exceptionally fortunate in that I had a dream of becoming a notable Utah historian. And I made friends with people like Hal Schindler and who in a sense you in, in some degrees uh took his place on the Tribune writing about history of Utah. Nobody could take Hal's place. <laughs> <laughs> but and we actually uh, see history saw history very differently because Hal felt that he he owned the Utah War. And hist nobody owns any historical subject. And you really typically find that sense that nobody else can deal with this subject because it's mine. I own it. <laughs> and there are historians who have learned more about a subject. I'm thinking of my friend and mentor, Bill McKinnon, who began studying the Utah War in 1958. And... That's now 60 years ago, and he calls it his 60 years hitch, uh, studying the Utah War. And he has discovered uh, realities, facts, that only a relentless, gifted, dedicated researcher could ever have done. And... He, he once had a conversation with Hal Schindler, and Hal... Uh, told him, we, we, Hal and I collaborated on revising Dale Morgan's <clears throat> classic West from Fort Bridger about the uh, opening of tra Pioneer Trails through Utah in 1846, which included the Donner Party and Hast Lansford Hastings and all these colorful characters and unfortunate disasters. But he told McKinnon that he thought that when, when Bagley began working on uh, Mountain Meadows, that, that that created a divide between us because he, Hal felt that the Utah War belonged to him. And Mountain Meadows is one, one aspect, aspect of, of that of broader the, narrative. 
But the, the reality is um, I've never felt that I owned and I don't want to own any historical subject. Well, you want to make everyone feel that history is something they can not only study, but if they wanted to pursue, to write, to sort out, to grapple with. And everybody who is willing to do the work and find people who will show them how to do that work can write the best history of anything ever written. Well, have a, have a, avocational historians, uh, people who are not academic. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that part in Utah's tradition. I mean, just how do those who love a subject or uh, have a, have a desire to sort something out, to grapple with the past and then turn around and make a use of it and something that others can appreciate. That's a Utah tradition, is it not? Oh, very much so. And some of our most important historians, uh, are not PhDs. I don't even have a master's degree. And in fact, I'm not qualified to teach history at uh, Salt Lake Community College. <laughs> well, let's back up. You've been a fellow at Yale. You Have you not? Have yes, you, I have. As well as a couple of other universities. I've <laughs> been the editor of a, a, a wonderful series uh, uh, by uh, the, uh, Arthur H. Clark and Company. Um, so you, you say you can't speak at a junior or you can't teach at a junior college, but you can produce 20 plus volumes of monumental history. And, and I understand the reason for that is that there have to be standards to any profession. And I never met the standards of the history profession, which was an advanced academic degree. You know, it's been so long and you've been such a part of Utah's history. I've never thought of you as an avocational historian. I mean, you are in the true sense, a historian, but, but Utah is filled with people who love and devote themselves to history. Yes. Um, yes. And it's, it's a captivating love. It deserves love. It is our story. Um, and I have been mentored by at least a dozen professional historians, men and women of immense talent and generosity and kindness. And one, one of the great lessons that uh, becoming a historian has taught me is uh, Play it forward. Be generous. Share your sources. Uh, encourage other people to follow their dream. If their dream is to be a historian, do it. Well, and there's no uh, definitive, complete, and finished history. I mean, the one thing I've realized in my 50 years in pursuit of public history mm -hmm. is every generation, every group. May I even say every individual has a right to frame up the past and see where it means something to them. And, and we do. We, we all create our own memory and our own stories. And memory is one of the most deceptive and tricky aspects of human existence. Because if you, if you compare what you remember about an event, to what other people remember about the very same event, 
people who were in the same room or in the same place. Sort of fallibility of the eyewitness, the coming, packing yes. your own, your own issues, your own uh, lenses, all the other things that make you a unique person. You see something entirely different than the next eyewitness. And, and entire wonderful books have been written about uh, the problems with memory and history and in, in history, what is truth? Well, truth is often what people want it to be or what they want to believe. And it's a human trait that we all believe what we want to believe. What a fool believes, he sees. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and we have confirmation bias. And as, as we, I, I've noticed as I age, I've had my set beliefs for more than half a century, and I have a harder time as I get older appreciating why other people can't see what is to me so clear. So self-evident. <laughs> and I know uh, my fellow Latter-day Saints who stuck with it feel equally certain that everyone should be as certain about Mormonism as they are, because it's as plain as the nose on your face. And I would suspect every, every tradition, every ideological frame that's picked up by people, we all develop our little, um, what are our, our little cocoons of value and appreciation. And, you know, that's what I love about Utah's history is there are so many different ideological frameworks from which we look at the past. And uh, that's why I just welcome the idea of just talking more and more about history and making it more available to the public. It's, it's funny to look back at Soviet history because Marxist historians claimed they had a scientific basis because great philosophers, uh, notably Karl Marx and George Frederick Handel, Hegel, Hegel yeah. had come up with theories that showed how scientific history operated. The whole pursuit well, of evidence. <laughs> well, they weren't so much concerned about evidence as they were concerned about class, and class conflict, and the inevitability of the proletarian revolution. And that and it's inescapable uh, uh, trajectory into something very set and and unmovable. The dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> I think we all feel, we all want our belief systems to be inevitable and to be verifiable because we feel them. We often believe what we believe so passionately. So we, Oh, go ahead, Will, please. We, we want to refute anything that challenges it, but it, it leads to very closed systems that don't, that aren't adapted to survive. And certainly that happened to Soviet history. So, so today, when we look at Utah's history, when we think of this ideological, this, this religious or philosophical or just deeply embedded ideas that we all carry. How is history able to help people to, to become more informed or better? I mean, I think in some ways uh, history uh, suffers from being like uh, uh, fish in water, you know, what water? Mm -hmm. 
you know, we're, we're so into it that we, we don't even see the value of history. Um, you have spent now 50, 60 years thinking, writing, researching, struggling over history. If you were to say, here's the most important thing to society about what I've done, what would that be? I'm reminded of an old Billy Joel song. I may be wrong <laughs> and you may be right. Uh, it's called, you may be right. But um, it, the, the, the most important historic lessons I think are human lessons about the, the cost of pride. Uh, we started on this subject. We did. Yep. And it's the cost of arrogance. And remember, you may be wrong. Uh, you, your, your deepest beliefs may be wishful thinking. And I, I, I thought I'd created a, a, a phrase which was wish, wishful history, but it turns out it was coined by a journalist who was writing about the history of Jackie Kennedy and her family, the Beauvoirs. Well, in, in her history, they were uh, French aristocracy who'd come to America for some odd reason. And in fact, the Beauvoir means woodcutter. <laughs> so uh, the, the journalist called the history of uh, the Beauvoir sisters wishful history. And we are all guilty of it because We'd sure like history to cooperate with what we believe is true. Yes, we want it to be used in in, in our camp. Uh, I, I will say for me that um, history is due diligence. It's this, if you're going to really look forward, so oftentimes we hear groups say, well, like we did a white paper or we spent the last six months sorting out what we did in the past and where we need to go forward. I mean, all of that is a careful analysis of the past just to say, okay, Here's a platform from which we're going to build the future. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Speak Your Peace, a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries about Utah history. If you're leaving us, we thank you for tuning in. In the next segment, we're going to ask Will a few more in-depth questions about the value of history and its part in Utah's present and past you can get Bill's, or rather Will's copies of his books on uh, Amazon at your local bookstore. You can get them at Ken Sanders and Benchmark Books and Zion Book. And uh, I think Jeff Bezos has all the money he needs. <laughs> we can so, find our books that Will has written in our local bookstores. Patronize your local bookstores. With that, Will, I'll thank you for being part of this first half of this session of Speak Your Peace. I'm Brad Westwood. And thanks for listening. Hi, this is Brad Westwood. You're listening to Speak Your Peace. And by the way, Speak Your Peace is spelled P-I-E-C-E. <laughs> as well as P-E-A-C-E. -E. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah history share their insights and discoveries.
<laughs> my guest today <laughs> is Will Bagley, one of Utah's wonderful historians and uh, a great intellect, someone who is not only someone respected by historians, but also by so many others that enjoy the pursuit of history. Will, when we were talking earlier, you brought up this a couple of questions. Frame one of the questions we're going to talk about, would you? Well, I, I brought up the question of universal history. What does history as a discipline share, no matter what kind of history it is? Whether Is it intellectual history? Is it folk history? Is it personal history? What are some of the traits that it has in common? And it seems to me that one of them is time. We're all caught in time. And I've reached the the point in time in my age where I'm pretty much an old man now. And all the great historical mentors that I've had through my life have died and I'm now getting the Lifetime Achievement Awards <laughs> they deserved. <laughs> and uh, it's very intimidating to have to step back and look at your life and look at your work and think, oh, what, is, what have I learned? What, what has it taught me? And one fact that I believe is common is we're all swimming in the same river of time and we all are bound to the same cycles. We all are, we all start young and if we're lucky enough, we end up old and we tend as human beings to believe that where we are is the best possible solution and place. That, that sense of, of uh, presentism that somehow how you're living at this moment is somehow. But, but that's all we've got because when you think about it, the future hasn't happened. The past has already happened. And so all we have is right now what is going on before us. Uh, that's the, that's the, in the river of history, that's the water we swim in, which is now. And that's why history has to be about what it looks like from this place. At this point, at this vantage, yep. from yep. these biases, from this framework. And we tend as human animals, I believe, to believe that whatever age we are at is the best possible age. And certainly I remember as a, when I was youthful and young, I loved uh, thinking how much, all the advantages I had over the old coots who were burdened down by experience. (laughs) (laughs) Or or how little they really understood. And how they'd often been scared uh, because life can be really, really tough. Um, And they'd often lost the, the drives and the fire and the passion is so characteristic of youth. But now that I have been through so many human cycles and ages, I tend to see that we all experience the same cycle. We all 
experience youth. We all experience youthful love. We all know what it's like to become a, not all of us, but many of us know what it's like to become a parent and to create a family and what a, a massive change that inflicts on people's lives. And again, for me, one of the great lessons of life is, uh, as Americans, we're blessed. We have been truly fortunate. And as I look at my own generation, which is the baby boomers, the post-World War II generation, we have we were born at the right time. We were born in an economy that was exploding. We were born in a nation that was wrestling with its most serious flaws, its racism and its prejudices and its sexism. And we haven't won all those battles, but we've at least begun fighting them. Mm -hmm. And as I look back on the, the changes that I've experienced in my life, a lot of these are based on, well, they're all based on personal experience. But I remember how badly uh, gay students were treated in my high school. And I did some of that mistreatment. And I, I, I'm ashamed of it when I look back on it. But I've ex we've experienced several revolutions, rights revolutions, mm -hmm. in our lifetimes. And one is certainly the civil rights revolution because I was born in a country that was legally racist. And I have seen that change. I have was born in a faith, the religious faith that was officially uh, racist and I have seen that change and I was born in a society that was massively homophobic and that taught me to be fearful of being gay myself but we now accept people for who they are and I believe all these changes and then of course the sexual revolution and more importantly, the women's rights revolution has helped create a world in which my granddaughters will have better chances than they would have in the society that I was born into. It's just not aspirational. It's not some sort of uh, pie in the sky. These things can in fact happen. Society, I think in our time, we've seen how things can change for the better. Sadly, how they can roll back or seem to be lost, but moving forward, these are good things that make society better and our lives richer and more rewarding. And I like to see history as confirming those lessons, that it shows that expanding people's rights is consistently better policy than limiting people's rights, that compassion and love and equality are better than bigotry and hatred and fear. Um, these are all fairly obvious lessons, but they're lessons that societies have to learn. 
And, and history has a part in that. We hope, we, we certainly hope that people don't use history to justify their worst actions. Um, and it's often mythological history that does that. The Nazis and Adolf Hitler and his ilk created a historical narrative that was based on victimhood. Well, in a completely romantic construct, sort of based out of history that was not real. This idea of uh, uh, a white race, uh, uh, a Teutonic, you know, deep into yes. the forest idea of, of what life really should be like. I mean, these were romantic wellsprings that bore no fruit other than just a terrible thing. And yet somehow that all happened in the last, well, within a hundred years of where we are today. Exactly. And it was certainly, and what ideologies often do is take historical narratives, which are unarguably true, such as the injustice of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, it was massively unfair to the losers. Mm -hmm. And you could argue, well, if, if the Germans had won, they would have been equally unfair to the British and French and Belgian losers, but and Russian losers. But equivalences like that really don't matter. Uh, it's patterns that historians look for, like a pattern of using victimhood to justify evil. And one of the perceptions that I've, I've noticed in my own life is that people love to be victims. We all love to tell stories about persecution. And the entire American myth is bound up in the notion that people came to America to achieve religious freedom, and they were fleeing persecution. People came to Utah as refugees from a hostile United States. Fleeing to, persecution. Yeah. And, and there are elements of truth in all that. But my own personal family history begins in 1630 with Orlando Bagley, who was part of the Massachusetts Bay Company, who were a bunch of Puritans who fled uh, Imperial England, Royal England, uh, to build their own home in the wilderness. And uh, the myth of the pilgrims, uh, the pilgrims went to uh, Amsterdam and, and Holland, which had more religious freedom than any other country in the world at the time. But they didn't like it because they wanted their children to be English because they were English. <laughs> they wanted to keep them that way. So they went back to England and they arranged to come to America in the Mayflower. This so-called tabula rasa, this place of where they one could, could build a life entirely. They could was build English. the city on the hill, the utopia. And we're in many ways, all peoples are searching for utopia for the, the golden world, the city on a hill. Um, but very often the story of fleeing persecution to achieve freedom 
really means what it meant to Orlando Bagley and his fellow Puritans, which was they didn't want to build a land of freedom. They wanted to build a land where they could persecute people who disagreed with them. And that's exactly <laughs> Have what it they, their way. That's what they did in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in spades. And then they began conducting genocide against the local native people who had saved their lives, who had made it possible for them to survive in a very harsh new world. So did people learn anything from history? It'd be nice to think so, but. Well, I, I definitely think in some ways those that do try to understand the past certainly have a few moments of pause at least, if not informed, more informed about what they do in the future. I, I think it, you know, often we hear it has a civilizing effect or it has a, you know, literary sort of, you know, intellectual ac- exercise effect. But but I think if you get really good evidentiary history, something that really is strongly presented, it does have an effect on your life. And it does have important moral implications, which are avoid arrogance. Uh, don't presume that your way is the only way or even the best way. Um, and those of us who love history, and both Brad and I have in many ways built a life around our love of history, mm-hmm. uh, would really love to believe it, it. we can make the world a better place by making people appreciate their history. I, I think you're absolutely right. There's that sort of sense that something good can come from this. Um, well stated. Well, can, let me ask you about evidence. I want to take a few minutes. I mean, we have two segments, 20, 25 minutes each. Um, I've been bedeviled by this idea of evidentiary history, this idea of the pursuit of the facts. How does that play into the, the story of history? There are, this is a massive oversimplification, which historians can be very good at. (laughs) But there are really two approaches to history. Uh, I'd like to call one of them Teutonic, which is based on European models of how uh, you progress in history. You come up with a thesis and then you go out and you collect all the evidence that supports that thesis. And at the end, you can prove your thesis. Then there's the American model, which is in direct contradiction to that, which is that you come up with a thesis, and then you go and search for the evidence. You work like hell to get whatever it takes. Whatever's related whatever supports or refutes your thesis. And you have to include all the facts that you turn up. Just as in a prosecution of a criminal, uh, prosecutors have to share the evidence, the mitigating evidence, that, that, that they're, they're, the person they're prosecuting is innocent. And you have to, when you're as a historian, evaluating what's evidence and what's truth and how do we come up with a thesis that will hold water. 
And I personally have developed a whole bunch of cockamamie theses, uh, one of which was that President James K. Polk had uh, determined that he was going to go to war with Mexico. And this was this is pretty obvious from what happens. But he had dispatched several American military agents, including explorer John C. Fremont, who he had sent to California in October of 1845 as a new president, and Commodore Robert Fightin' Bob Stockton, who took uh, the USS Congress to, the, to California and left, sailed in October 1845. And my thesis was, well, Fremont, no, Polk told Fremont and uh, Stockton that they could bet, they would, he would guarantee that the United States would be at war with Mexico by May of 1856, 46. 46, yeah. Now, why, why would he do that? Well, because America, under Commodore Thomas at Catsby Jones, had already sailed into Monterey Bay, which was the capital of Mexican California, and had landed the Marines and taken down the Mexican flag and run up the Stars and Stripes because they'd gotten a, a report that the newspapers had said the U.S. and Mexico were at war. <laughs> and at that time, American naval officers had standing orders to seize California's ports in the event of war. Well, three days later, it turns out that America wasn't at war, and it had been confirmed in newspapers that showed up three days after uh, Jones sails in. <laughs> and that's... It, it, it was profoundly embarrassing, to put it mildly, but that's the last thing in the world that uh, Polk wanted because he wanted America to take California, but he didn't want he didn't to have want to, to give it back. <laughs> so I kept finding all this wonderful circumstantial evidence, and I could refer you to several books that make the same case. And then I came across one piece of evidence in... Fremont's papers, which was a letter from one of my favorite Americans, uh, James Kleiman, who was one of the only Americans except Abraham Lincoln and, well, except for Abraham Lincoln and John Quincy Adams. No, except for John Quincy Adams, who had met both uh, Lincoln and Washington because Kleiman's father had been a sharecropper on Washington's plantation, and as a very young child, he'd met uh, the, our great founding father. And then during the Black Hawk War in Illinois in 1846, Kleiman served with Abraham Lincoln. So uh, that alone makes him, in my book, a great American. <laughs> and this letter that... Was that you found? Um, how did it change your thinking? Because Kleiman has, who who is arguably the, the uh, one of the three greatest mountain men of all time, 
Jedediah Smith, uh, Thomas Fitzpatrick, and James Kleiman, that he'd brought a, a number of American mountain men down from Oregon, and he wrote a letter to Fremont, and he says, I've got about 50 guys here, and with those men, we could take over all of California. And he says, we'll be here until April anyway, if you want us to stick around and take over the place. <laughs> We're and, ready for the work. And, and Fremont, who was a fairly soft-headed guy, writes back and says, nah, I think I'm going to go up to Oregon <laughs> and aggravate the Hudson's Bay Company again. <laughs> so that blew my thesis away. No matter how hard and all the circumstantial evidence that you had gathered, of course, that was such a turbulent historical time with all kinds of changes. I mean, it took a while to sort all those things out. And there was no doubt that there were plots to conquer California. And that's what I really cut my teeth on, writing about history. and uh, Practicing, how do, you, how do you come up with the truth, with a, a thesis that stands up? Have you ever had a time where you have pursued a thesis that everything in the in your pursuit of it has, I mean, a, 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 this is a case before you said where it fell apart, but, um, you know, there's a certain kind of uh, moral fiber about, you know, pursuing the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, can you think of any stories about how um, you've had to sort of stop in your tracks and pursue something else or see that the past was not quite as we had thought it was? I mean, maybe not you, but other people where the past has been so clearly stated, everyone knows it, it's part of the story of our civilization, and then, no, sorry, that's not in fact what happened. Morrison Elliott, Samuel Elliott Morrison, who wrote uh, Admiral of the Ocean Seas, a great biography of uh, Columbus. And there were, he came up with one thesis, I think, about where Columbus landed, and, and I may have the facts of this anecdote wrong, but then he took ships and sailed around what he thought was the, where, where Columbus had his first landfall, which is now typically assigned in the Bahamas, and, and did come up with what he thought was the very best uh, analysis, but then uh, discovered that the original thesis was wrong. Now, there's, there's got to be a much better example well, I, than that. I, I think of uh, Leonard J. Arrington once telling me in a, at a dinner party I was at that he thought that at least 5% of what he wrote had some problems to it. Oh. And Leonard was a great historian, and it's knowing that uh, you may be wrong, that you can make, egregious mistakes because of what you want to believe. and Well, and sometimes I think people examine evidence as, as if it's all of the same type or ilk when, in fact, there's motives throughout. I mean, you have to really understand why is that document there and what were the motives behind writing it. And sometimes historians get sort of turned askew, not so much out of their own bias as much as they're thinking they're following the evidence without really examining the motive behind those sources. That exactly. And, and very often 
certainly in Utah history, there is evidence that's simply manufactured to support falsehood. Uh, and oftentimes, in, you can say that across all history. Yeah. yeah. We're certainly seeing it happen before our eyes. And historians, like politicians, can look at the same set of evidence and come to dramatically different conclusions. Uh, and that's why we interpret history. Uh, we have to realize that That we, we might make we make mistakes. We're human. We we come up with theories that, in the cold light of day, will not hold water. Well, you know, you were talking, or I mentioned the idea of presentism. This idea that we look at the past under with the with the lens of our own uh, view, and we also have this human notion that we're living at some peak of human civilization, that everything in the past was somehow yes. less informed than us. I mean, there's so many uh, things that, um, that that make uh, history fickle. Um, and we do that with our own lives. We tend to think that we have done what no one's done before. Yeah, or, we're, we're on new ground here. We are the crown of creation, uh, as an old rock song said. But we're all human, and that's what's universal about history: is it's it's human history. Well, and I I do think that we if if history can do anything for the general public, it's to just make them aware that um, you're not the crown of civilization, and that uh, no matter how hard you work, no matter how careful you are with your resources, no matter how comprehensive you are in your storytelling and your writing, inescapably somebody's going to snicker at you too in a later generation, that inescapably we're going to write history for our moment at this time and we're going to see things you didn't see in the past. And that's perfectly appropriate because... One of my favorite anecdotes about history is the uh, chair of the Mississippi State History Commission was testifying before the Mississippi State Senate. And a senator asked, Commissioner, when are you going to be done? <laughs> when are you going to be finished? With your he, history. Yes, he, he had a notion that... Uh, We've spent all this money on you. How much longer do we have to spend money before you can get the job done? <laughs> and it can be hermetically sealed or set aside and forevermore. It's done. And, and we can prove that white people were justified in everything we've ever done in the state of Mississippi. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's one of the, I find it wonderful that we, history never ends. History is continually raising new challenges and new questions. And we're, it's continually being created. Uh, every day, uh, once the day is done, becomes part of our property as historians. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when uh, the, the 21st century arrived, and I was at Floyd O'Neill's New Year's Eve party, which were epic parties. And I met the woman who became my uh, second wife. Uh, and I saw it as the 20th century ended. I thought, 20th century, 
you now belong to us, the historians. <laughs> <laughs> you've closed up and you've, uh, you're now stable and finished, and now we're going to sort you out? But no, we've got new territory to fight oh. over. We will fight over what, uh, what the 20th century meant for certainly the rest of our lives and probably through the rest of as long as history lasts, as long as people care about it. And we both hope, I'm sure, that people will care about it uh, as long as humanity lasts. I, I couldn't agree more. Hey, I, I, as we close out this incredible time together, Will, I want to ask you one last question about history. How does creativity, you know, so often we hear about the scientific process or the, you know, this legal uh, influence of evidentiary uh, uh, history or the journalistic idea of who, what, when, where, how, or all these sort of processes and ideological or methodological constructs. Where does creativity fit in in this world of history? It, 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 I, that's a great question. And I personally uh, think about it quite often because I'm aware that history is not revealed. History is created. And you can... <laughs> histor the historians I've known have tried to write engaging, compelling history told as stories. But there are lots of historians who write it like lawyers or write it as legal histories where it's... it's following a very narrow set of rules. Well, I've, I've even read history by lawyers where you almost have to figure out what's not there, not what is there. <laughs> oh, yes. And it's often not what did you put in your book, it's what you left out. <laughs> and when he, somebody once asked Juanita Brooks, um, why did you put that in your history? And she, she said, I didn't put it in. I just didn't leave it out. <laughs> so it's both a question of creativity, but it's also about what I see as a moral choice. Do we address the past honestly, or do we try to create a myth that supports our belief systems, whatever they are? Um, and I think it is very much about uh, what you don't what you don't leave out. Yeah, that you just include what makes up history, which is heroism, depravity, uh, virtue, and evil, all in, in the same human package. Well, and inescapably, I think there's a literary need. Um, one thing I've enjoyed so much in reading your many books, Will, is just how well you frame a sentence, how carefully the arguments are presented, how much it moves you to the next thing. That, that's an important part of history is this creative ability to put a story together and do it in a, you know, in a, I don't know, a readable form. That's one reason we're so gifted in Utah is we've been blessed with some of the West's greatest storytellers. Wallace Stegner, uh, Juanita Brooks, Bernard DeVoto. I still r often read those writers and despair that I will ever be able to write a history as good as uh, 
Devoto's uh, 1846 year of decision mm-hmm. uh, or tell a story uh, like Wallace Stegner's Wolf Willow about the gate, great cattle disaster of 1887. But a man's dreams should exceed his grasp <laughs> to end with a cliche. Um, well, it's been a pleasure to be with you today, and I hope you'll come back and be a part of uh, Speak Your Peace. And I hope uh, Brad has shown that history is fun. Again, <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. It's, it's essential that we make it fun. Uh, I think your writings are incredibly serious, but I also think, uh, particularly when you speak and engage people with the pa- about the past, I-, I always appreciate the laughter that so often comes in your conversation. Thank you so much, Will, for being here. And uh, as, uh, as we close out Speak Your Peace, uh, we urge you again to uh, visit your local bookstore. Uh, there are many. Uh, we can tell you a few. Uh, benchmark Books, um, uh, also um, uh, Ken Sanders Books. Rare Books. Rare Books. Um, there are others, uh, and we hope that you will frequent them and that you will take a look at the wonderful books that Will has written over his career. Betsy Burton's King's English. That's right. Uh, Absolutely. Tony One of the Wellers. best booksellers. Wellers uh, Book Works. <laughs> so many great places to be and to, uh, you will see uh, uh, Mr. Bagley's books there front and center. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks again. Thanks again.